Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Mr. Whitaker, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. How's it been, man? It's been a, it's been a full year and a half, maybe a little bit before. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the show again. Thanks. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's been a busy year. It's always a busy year, but uh, in terms of running Mad in America, the website and all, but in terms of your subject here about psychiatry and its influence on society and diagnosing people, diagnosing younger people, it's just, it's getting ever more out of control. I mean, the more and more you see, you see people on TikTok saying it's great to be diagnosed and people sort of looking to be diagnosed and more and more youth on psychiatric drugs. So it's been another year and another year in the increase of the psychi, what I call the psychi, psychiatrization of the American youth in particular. Yeah, there's an overdiagnosis problem I think that's happening now. It's like once, like for instance, with use the example ADHD, I've been learning a lot about. Once that became recognized or has now become more popular mainstream, it seems like now I'm running into like, it's like when you buy a car and then you can't stop seeing that car. It seems like now everybody's using that. Like, oh, I was diagnosed with this. Where I brought up the question to psychiatrists, you might think you might be overdiagnosing some things because it's just like the symptoms. It's like some of them, it's like, that's not a, a psychiatric disorder. That's just being a human being. If you're worried about bills, you can't say that's a worry problem or an OCD issue. That's a real issue you need to focus on so i mean do you think that there's a obviously there's a, a large overdiagnosis problem in this country but i mean it can't be a lack of research or something like that it has to be something a little bit more systemic a little bit more corporatized on that aspect well listen it, you know you have to look at the birth of the adhd diagnosis and what it is so the birth of the add attention deficit disorder diagnosis happened in 1980 when uh, the American Psychiatric Association published the third edition of its Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. It didn't exist before that, okay? And if you look at the symptoms, the quote symptoms, which they use to diagnosis, it's, it's sort of like doesn't pay attention in school or sort of a pain in the ass, runs around too much. Okay, those are behaviors that exist on a spectrum, okay? They're normal behaviors on the spectrum. So we're not talking about a disease from the beginning. And the whole point was initially they said, okay, we're going to look, really look at the, they, they have an ADHD scale for, you know, and then it becomes ADHD in 1987, by the way. But they, they create a, uh, you know, a series of questions. And then you subjectively say infrequent, never infrequently, frequently, often that sort of thing. Okay. So it's a subjective analysis of, or, perception of how often a person, a child, uh, you know, displays these behaviors. So first of all, the whole thing is subjective. It's not objective. Second of all, it's about behaviors that people often, you know, say boys in a classroom, they often have this behaviors. So all you're doing with this is you're going to say, well, we're going to take the people that score the highest on this subjective evaluation and say they have ADHD. So it's a subjective evaluation of behaviors. Now, once you have that scoring system, okay, and there's different scoring systems out there, you can say, are we going to say the top 2% have ADHD, the top 5% have ADHD, the top 10% have ADHD. You can set that boundary line, you know, because you're going to get a group of scores, right? You're going to get a bell curve of scores, and you can say, are we going to say it's going to be one standard deviation above the mean, two standard deviations? And the point is, if you follow this, initially they said it was going to be 2% of the population, then it was 4%, then it was 10%. 
And of course you have pharmaceutical money pushing this story along and they want to get as many kids as possible diagnosed. And then you had people getting paid, say starting in the 1990s, pharmaceutical companies paying uh, researchers to expand the diagnosis so they could you know, sell more drugs. And then it became popularized through social media. And of course, pharmaceutical companies are their invisible hand, uh, you know, sort of pushing along this idea of, hey, diagnose yourself, right? As they go take a, uh, an online test. And then it suddenly transformed into something sort of stigmatized, you know, like something abnormal to something to be sort of cool to explain yourself, your difficulties in life. So really what you have here is a social story of the fact that, yeah, growing up is often difficult and often people are impulsive, kids are impulsive. Often they don't like school and often they run around and starting to say at some level, those are abnormal behaviors so we can diagnose it and then we can treat it with stimulants. Now, okay, so that's the first thing. The diagnosis is a construct around behaviors that some people don't like. Other people like these behaviors, by the way. And just to give you an example, when I was growing up this long time ago, okay? But when I was growing up and I, you know, I got taken down to the principal's office in elementary school for a few times for fights and stuff like that, misbehavior, the teacher would send me out. And then my parents would get called, okay? Now, First of all, no one thought I had a disorder. What they thought I had was I was misbehaving. Okay. That's what I was doing. And so the message was start behaving more. By the way, I was the youngest kid in the class, and the youngest kids in the class always get diagnosed with ADHD more. Okay. That's the first thing that tells you that it's a behavioral thing, not a disease thing. But I also remember this at some point. My dad wasn't totally disappointed in the fact that I was getting into fights and getting and being taken down to the principal's office. To him, that was an example of a son who, you know, had some rebelliousness in him and, you know, also was willing to sort of stand up for what he, you know, believed in and stuff. So the interesting thing is that this time, this is the late 1950s, early 1960s, there was some thought that it was okay for boys to get in fights, okay? That wasn't necessarily a bad thing. So all I'm saying, not only is this a construct that arose, it's part of a changing time in terms of how we're going to view our kids. And part of the changing time is now we want all of our kids to do so well in school and to get into the best colleges and there's all that sort of conformity to getting A's and all. That was not always the case. It wasn't always the case that parents were pushing their kids to get all A's. And when, when I went to college, my parents didn't even talk to me about going to college. Oh, you're going to apply to college? Great. Where are you going to apply? It's part of a social change where we put so much pressure on our kids to conform, to behave well, to get into good schools. So you have to see ADHD in this larger context of like, we constructed something about kids who were a bit problematic in, in, in schools and saying that was a disease. And then, and then at some point it became cool or sort of an explanation for why you had difficulty in life other than the fact that life often is difficult. And all of that happens within a commercial environment that wants to see kids 
and adults diagnosed and taking prescription drugs, okay? There's a commercial force behind this. But then you have to ask, well, what do stimulants do to people? What do they do to kids? What do they do to all kids, regardless of whether you have that diagnosis and all? First of all, what stimulants do is they narrow your focus. They reduce social interactions among kids. Now, a teacher might see that as good. Oh, my kids, this kid isn't talking as much, right? And he's just sort of focused on what this thing or, you know. But is that good for kids? Okay, so that's the first thing you have to ask is, is the diminishment of these behaviors necessarily good where they talk less? Yeah, but they dangle the carrot that they, if they get a better education, they can get a better life and parents will- Okay, fine. That. That, that, that's the story, right? What did they look, what did they find with long-term studies done in the US, Canada, and Australia about how being a diagnosed and given a stimulant compared to kids with the same behaviors in the baseline, but no diagnosis and stimulant, which group five, 10 years later is doing better in school, doing better in school and functioning better? Non-stimulant. And non-diagnosed. But it's also even within the diagnosis, it's the kids off stimulants are doing better. So when you hear about this whole story, you have to recognize a couple of things. It's being sold to us as a disease. You have it or not. That's not true. It's a construct that just picks off behaviors at a, you know, it's a social construct at a certain end of the spectrum. That's number one. Number two, does diagnosis and self-help people, kids grow up and function better? No. Number three, does giving stimulants to kids so diagnosed help them grow up and function better and achieve better in school? No. The only thing that diagnosis does really for you is sometimes you get extra time on tests right? Because you have this disability. So the whole story is basically a commercial story that also benefited psychiatry as it sort of expanded its domain of power. But it does, it's, there's no evidence, none, zero, that it is helping our kids grow up and thrive as adults. None. Plenty of evidence that says it makes them less curious if you're on stimulants a long time. Some evidence that increases addiction possibilities because of these are dopamine releasing drugs, functional impairments, greater delinquency, all that shows up in the research literature and it's never told to the public. And that's why a year later, I'm still pissed about this whole story. No, I appreciate your passion on it. It's just, it, I, it reminds me of like when I did a deep dive into asylum history, there was a tie in with eugenics, which, you know, everyone is a little bit hesitant to bring up. But psychiatry does not have a good past at all. It has a very dark history of things. And if you start looking at like if you're marketing to kids, you're trying to get them on drugs and so they can focus in school and pay attention. I mean, in a sense, isn't that not similar to the whole idea of trying to breed nine to five workers or whatever the mentality is out there that they're trying to do? I mean, when you tell a kid that they have a diagnosis, even if they don't take medication, you're now giving that kid an option to say that everything that didn't go right in their life is now going to be blamed on that diagnosis. I find myself at times doing it too. Like it's because I have ADHD or it's because I did this. I don't do it a lot. I try not to, but it sits in the back of my head. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But it's just the factor of when you look at like what you were mentioning in the beginning about tests, the taking a test online out of a question survey. That's not an accurate thing. Like I don't even look, I look at that. I go, what the fuck is that going to tell me to do? There's no way that's on, there's not a point in taking it, but there's a number of people out there that will take it. It has hit the social media mainstream. Now, a lot of these disorders and diagnosis stuff is, 
I'm seeing it everywhere I look. It's not just because of my algorithm. I'm seeing friends take stuff and follow pages about no, it. No, no, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's, it's a problem. All the pathologizing of youth is what is going on. Listen, you've raised a number of different points here. First of all, I'm on your side. Don't hit me. I'm no, 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 no. <laughs> you talked about eugenics. That's number one. You talked about how it becomes an excuse to explain your behaviors, right? And then you also and talked about making nine to five people and doing better in school. Okay, let's just deconstruct each of those points. First of all, eugenics, you know, it dates back to the 1800s and it really got going in the first part of the 19, 1900s, the 20th century. And the idea was that there are certain people who are born with good genes and there are some people born with bad genes and you need social policy that encourages those with good genes to breed and those with bad genes not to breed. Well, first of all, that's the very policy, the thinking. That thinking was promoted in the U.S. more than in any other country. We were also the uh, in the late 1800s. And what it was promoted for in the U.S. saying was immigrants aren't like wasps, those good old English-speaking initial immigrants. We were getting Jewish people. It was also applied to black people who were freed after the, you know, the ex people had been held in slavery. And, and it was a way to sort of um, have policies that were, uh, you know, um, discriminatory Jim Crow policies towards the black people, et cetera. And then as part of that, those eugenic ideas, we started having laws that prevented, quote, the insane from marrying. And then we also had laws that said we need to uh, lock them up in asylum so they won't breed. And then we had laws that were about forced sterilization, et cetera. So eugenics and so these, these policies became implemented within psychiatric circles and within asylum medicine. And what did we learn from this? Well, we learned from this and the Holocaust, this eventually leads to the Holocaust, is that Eugenic ideas about who is fit and who is not fit is anti-democratic, and it also leads to the worst sort of abuses, and at the most extreme, to sort of state murder, state sterilization, and even murder of people. So anything that has this eugenic idea that there are certain groups of people who are not normal, you're really treading down a perilous path, particularly within a democratic society when we say all people are created equal. Now, how does that apply to what's happening today in psychiatry where we say people have ADHD, they have bipolar, they have this disease of depression? You are saying that there's this line out there between the normal and the abnormal. And that is an absolute reflection of eugenic ideas that there are some people who are abnormal and threatening to your society. And in essence, that's what you're doing when you start diagnosing so many percentage of your population. You're saying this group is abnormal. And, and, and by the way, what you see is at the most extreme form of that, when you say people are abnormal, when they have like a psychotic dis, uh, diagnosis, you say we can take away their civil liberties without even any due process. We can put them in asylums. They haven't committed a crime. And now we can, in most states, we have something called um, assisted, uh, assisted outpatient treatment, which really is you're under a state order to take your drugs. Yeah. Okay. 
So that's a guardianship that is taking away people's rights. So all I'm saying is if we start with eugenics, we remember from the past how that leads to a horrible abuses of civil rights abuses, right to be. If you have a psychiatric system that is saying these are people are abnormal and are not really in control of their behaviors, you're treading down that eugenic pathway once again. And that's what you're doing when you diagnose people with, quote, diseases of the brain. And ADHD is presented as a disease of the brain. It's false, but that's how it's presented. The, the, the second thing is you have to ask whether the behaviors, you said, well, okay, we want everybody nine to five sort of conformists, right? That does fit a capitalist model. Like don't object to the powerful, don't object to horrible labor conditions, just be a good little worker, which is sort of what- Well, they need less creatives. They need more people doing the job. Well, first of all, that's, that's a value judgment. That's a social value judgment. That's not a medical judgment. That's number one. To society's benefit, think about evolution. You have a tribe of people. Do you want everybody to be the same genetically down to the last thing? No, you want a spectrum of behaviors, right? You want people who are curious. You want some people who are risk-taking, right? So that's why you have a genetic variation and why you have a variation in behaviors. It's actually sort of programmed into the human model so you have the spectrum of behaviors because populations are healthier when you have some risk takers, when you have some creative people and that sort of thing. So when we see this idea where, okay, we're going to say certain behaviors are outside the norm, we're defining normal ever in an ever more sort of narrow fashion, and that's not good for a society. And it's also ahistorical. It's against like evolutionary biology, okay? So that's the second thing you're talking about. Um, the third thing you were talking about was, um, I'm now I'm losing what was the third thing you were talking about. What did you write um, down? I'll be able to tell you. Or just, no, or, if I could yeah. read my jottings here, I would be able to do it, but <laughs> I'm not seeing it right now. The social media but, aspect of things about kids. Oh, being... yeah, yeah. Listen, oh, yeah. So that's sort of evading a responsibility, the explanation for your life. Listen, if you if you take away psychiatry for a second, just imagine growing up. Growing up is first of all difficult. That's number one. Second of all, you know, we do have behaviors that take, uh, you know, moods, emotions, urges that sort of take control of us during certain times of our life. Now they never disappear, but think about going through teenagehood, like you just like got sort of raging emotional pulses through you. So my, my point of this is that when we think about ADHD and we think about all these diagnoses, we're sort of, it's, it's, a, it's an impoverished philosophy of being is the way to see it. And people are adopting that impoverished level of being because in fact, the existential challenge of growing up is to sort of become, to become aware of your brain, to become, you know, to become aware of your emotions, trying to gain control of your emotions, to make peace with your mind in some ways. The human mind is not this sort of comfortable, uh, always sort of pleasant place. It's just not. It's often a painful place. 
and it's difficult to grow up and it's difficult to control your behaviors. And it's hard to realize sometimes when you're in the midst of jealousy or, you know, sort of love is taking you over, you know, passion is taking you over. Those are human emotions that we have to learn to sort of deal with. And we suffer grief, we suffer failures, we suffer setbacks. Uh, you know, social situations are filled with cliques, you know, people forming alliances, and sometimes you're left out, sometimes you're all this. It's complicated, it's complex, it's difficult. We have emotions that are really hard to deal with. That's what's growing up. And now we have this new philosophy of being that sort of says to kids, you're just supposed to be okay all the time, sort of passionless. That is a historical, and it is a barrier, a philosophical barrier that allows kids today to grow up, grapple with their difficulties, and move on with their lives. They get trapped in this sense of like, oh, something's wrong with me. And this explains why I can't succeed in this way or not. Whereas if you didn't have these diagnoses, which we didn't for kids many years ago, kids would understand that they, you know this is their responsibility to sort of learn and grow up and be responsible for themselves. So you didn't have this sort of, oh, this is why I can't do things. No, you'd have to say, I'm not doing this now, but I can learn to do things better. And finally is this, we don't need a bunch of, people like when I grow up I did very well on like standardized tests okay fine but that's just one form of sort of capability I knew kids that could take it by the time they were 14 could take apart a car okay and they could put the engine back they could do all sorts of sort of like mechanistic things that I was very jealous of well we don't test for those skills do we we don't test for that knowledge but that's that's like the knowledge to like take things apart, put them back together, create things. Why don't we value that knowledge? So the other thing I'm trying to, and I'm really rambling here, but what I'm trying to say to you is just because a kid doesn't do well on a certain standardized test or written test in school, it doesn't mean he's not intelligent and has all sorts of capabilities, him or her. And what we're doing with this sort of like standardized testing and this sort of sense of like, oh, you have ADHD if you're not excelling in school. Well, if you're not excelling in school, it may be that they're teaching certain things that are not so interesting to you That's for and not really so relevant to you. And the same kid that may fail on a, on a like what an English test or whatever social, he might just if you say, OK, who can take apart a car? That kid would be the best in the class. But we don't celebrate that. That's my point. This is a problem with the classification system. Everything needs to find a hole like a circle has to go in the circle hole. A square has to go in the square yeah, hole. Yeah, well, listen, kids come up and uh, human beings are in very many different flavors, so to speak. They have different talents. And one of the reasons that's good for a society is because you have a lot of different types of jobs and any so, and tasks and that sort of thing. You need creative people. You need people who are good with their hands. You need people who can take things apart. You need a diversity of human talents, interests. And now we have a school process and a psychiatric diagnostic process that wants to make us the normal, ever more normal, ever more limited, and 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 just as you sort of said, ever more able to function in a society where you it crushes creativity, 
crushes sort of um i just don't understand that word normal it's just the classification whatever they're calling it normal it's like not every single person falls in that classification most people don't fall in that classification robbie that's the point that's the point read your bible read your read your literature peep there is no normal we have all sorts of different behaviors that's the point and there's some affected by culture etc we have an a historical philosophy governing us now. And that is that there is a normal, you're either normal or abnormal. That's just nonsense. And it's doing incredible damage to our kids, our society. Think about what percentage of your friends ended up diagnosed. How old are you, Robbie? I'm 25. Okay. What percentage of your friends and kids you grew up with you think have been diagnosed or been told they have some ADHD and need drugs? Above 90%. I'm probably the only one of my friends that did not take a drug. Okay. So what does that tell you about how we're raising our kids today? Tells me my parents did something right. Well, okay about you, yes. But I'm, I'm talking about society. If we're going to say 90% of our kids have something wrong with them. I mean, it creates 90% a, of our kids don't have something wrong with it. creates a okay. fractured society. I mean, if you wonder why the suicide rates for kids my age and uh, lower are getting so insane, it's because of the fact that they feel like they've lost or they've been diagnosed and their body just sucks and all this type of bullshit that I well, think is wrong. We didn't do right on that. There's something wrong with them. That's the exact wrong thing to do. Instead of saying like, wow, you know what? You're a person born into what to into this Human beings can be so creative. They're so resilient. They're so adaptive. That should be the message to kids, right? Think of all the talent you have. Instead, we tell kids today, wow, you shouldn't be sad. Wow, you don't pay enough attention in school. Wow, you've got this problem with you. you got that problem with you. No wonder that people get kids get depressed. They're constantly being told what's wrong with them instead of what's right with them. I mean, do you see this like with medication when it comes to long-term effects, when we talk about birth rates, I have a number of friends, a number of friends who have kids, but a number of friends who are trying to have kids and it's not easy for them. I think it's a, a combination of things, but I also think some of those people have been on stimulants since they were at a very young age. So I don't think, I think that has something to do with some of their birth issues. They've even raised that question to some of their doctors as well, too. Well, here's the thing to understand about psychiatric drugs, whether they be stimulants, whether they be antipsychotics or antidepressants or whatever they might be. They're presented to the public as normalizing agents, that you have some chemical imbalance or something, and they're fixing that chemical imbalance, right? That's how they're presented to the public. In fact, we don't know of any biological abnormalities of people diagnosed with these different diagnoses. And the drugs, though, create abnormalities in, in neurotransmitter function. And as a result of those abnormalities, you do such thing, do so, you see such things as greater functional impairment over time, uh, often less emotional re reactivity, in other words, less ability to express emotion and desire and some sexual dysfunction. Um, so what you know being able to have a kid is sort of the if anything we're sort of designed by evolution to do is have kids right to pass on our genes so if people are having trouble having genes and it's even becoming some physical then you're saying there's been some diminishment within sort of the physical health 
of that you know, population. And all I can say is there's no question that diagnosis plus years and years of psychiatric drugs are making you less physically and emotionally capable. That's what happens with long-term use of these drugs. You see some functional impairments, you see some physical impairments, and you see some emotional impairments. You think it's weird as a society how much we force medications on people, or we just use that as our first option? I mean, I know they say it works, but I I mean, I haven't been to the doctor. I'm not a big doctor's guy, but last time I went, they were like, oh, yeah. I was like, if the medication I was getting, I was taking one for a digestive issue. I said, if it, you know, if, if I'm only going here and the medication works, why do I have to keep like seeing my doctor to keep getting it refilled? You should just be refilling it for me. They're like, well, that's not how this works. You have to come in and actually see your doctor and all this type of stuff. But the hassle was so much, I just stopped taking it. I mean, it wasn't anything like it was, I mean, it, just to go to the bathroom and stuff as a medication for that. But I stopped taking it and I'm still going to the bathroom. So it's not like I 100% needed that medication. But when they start saying you could take this and we might have to tack on this, I just looked at it. I was like, yeah, I'm 25. If I want to travel and I have to worry about like being gone for three months and then I have to go find a CVS in another country or something like that, that's a problem. I don't want to do that for the rest of my life. So I think I'm okay. And then I kind of just walked out. But that's not the option for every single person. I know so many people that go, yeah, it's my day off. I'm going to go refill my prescriptions. I'm going to go do this. And I'm just like, even young kids haven't beyond psychiatric drugs. You're saying some yeah, of your friends just beyond psychiatric drugs, anything, Lexapro, any of that type of stuff that they're going on. They're just taking something. And I believe that like some medications, sure. Like the intestinal thing, something that's like a body function issue. Sure. But these people are like, I mean, their day off is planned by getting pills and they have the little pill counter. I'm like, we're not 60 years old. We're not 70. We're in our twenties. We shouldn't be taking and worried about when we're going to get our next prescription refill. That's a problem. Well, listen, now you're talking about a larger story. So up until like the 60s at the earliest, medications were seen being used for acute purposes, mostly not for chronic purposes. So, you know, obviously the antibiotics were used that way. Insulin was one of the first sort of chronic drugs to take. But then the, what the pharmaceutical companies understood starting in the 60s is like, it's much better to, to make a, you know, if you, if you only use a drug for a couple of weeks, you only have a customer for a couple of weeks. What we need to do is start have, you know, having lifestyle medicines, medicines that people take forever, you know, for, for, you know, for long periods of time or even indeterminate periods of time. And so that's when you started getting these stuff like, okay, you have to have blood pressure between a certain level to be normal. So they started selling like, you know, antihypertensive drugs and then the cholesterol has to be between certain levels. And they started narrowing down what was seen as acceptable, saying that if you weren't in these ranges, you needed to take these drugs long term. Now, the problem with chronic medications is they all work by interrupting some normal process in, in, in the body. Okay, And so what you generally see with chronic long term use of medications is, you know, a pretty good range of adverse effects. And, and and so you see what has happened is sort of maybe perhaps an initial risk being transformed into chronic long-term use. And that chronic long-term use starts to have an effect on sort of your overall health. So what you see here is an increasing, is sort of a, a long-term process 
within a commercial environment to get people to take medications, even at an ever younger age and on a chronic basis. So it's like creating a market. Now, what has happened in recent years is, are we seeing increasing longevity? No, that's actually been sort of going down lately in terms of the uh, you know average lifespan. How about dementia? Dementia is exploding in the United States. Alzheimer's is exploding in the United States. Well, why is that? Well, one reason I think is that by the time people are 65 and 70, they're on like four or five or more drugs. So the what psychiatry is like a microcosm of this longer, larger problem within society where they're turning us into medication takers and where we take them as part of our daily lives at ever younger periods. And by the time people are 50 and 60, it's just a routine part of growing old. Now, I'm 70 years old. I don't take any medications. I never have. I mean, if listen, if I get a bacterial infection, I'll take a medication, okay? Or, you know, if I have something else, you know. Uh, I don't take medication for headaches or anything like that. Like I. Oh, yeah, but I might, you know what? If I have a terrible headache, I might take a medication to get rid of the headache. I'm not going to take it every day, but I might take it, you know, I might. Pack of peas, I'll be all right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. My point is, uh, we should be trying to keep everyone healthy enough so they're not on medications. That should be the goal of us, our society, with diet, exercise, sleep, organizing our our, our world, etc. But instead, we have a, a a medical system where people who are experiencing some complaint go to a doctor and next thing you know, they leave with a drug and pretty soon they might be on two or three drugs and they get those prescriptions refilled. So we're creating a population where they can expect, so many people can expect to take medications on a regular basis. And there's no signs that over the long term, that in, that approach in, improves the health of that population. Instead, you see all, you know, you see more problems cropping up because of all the adverse effects. I um, you're hitting at a core issue here, which is the corporate influence in the business or corporate influence into research studies. Um, you mentioned it in the beginning, but I asked a person on ADHD. I said, you know, when they're offering Adderall, I was like, well, how many studies do you have compared to like someone trying an alternative method? And then he kind of snapped on me and was like, you're not, these are not contaminated studies. I was like, that's not my point here. My point here is, is that if you have companies like pharmaceutical companies funding studies, they're only going to fund studies for the drugs that they want people to use. You're not funding studies like anything else that could be other forms of treatment. That's not going to get any funding at all. So now you have this absolute answer. This is the 100% proof. And that's where I started looking more into business affiliations that with some of these research studies and a, a shit ton of people are funded by giant corporations on some of these major studies that come out. And it's ridiculous. We should not have, it's like us advertising pharmaceutical drugs on the television. We're one of two countries that do that. One of right. two countries. Right. Well, listen, nearly all the studies on the efficacy of drugs are funded by drug companies. Okay. Now, when they design those studies... I have no conflicts of interest. Yeah, right. Get out of no, here. But when they design those studies, they're designing them with, a, with the intent of making their drug look good, okay? And in terms of how they, they set up the, the methodology, what outcomes they're going to assess, that sort of thing. So you have to understand our societal knowledge about the merits of drugs arises from, you know, in large part, 
the overwhelming majority are funded by the makers of those drugs. And you know that the makers of those drugs have a in financial incentive to make their drugs look good. Now, let's go back to stimulants. We did have an NIMH funded, that's the National Institute of Mental Health funded study of stimulants going back to the 1990s, okay? And that was called the MTA study. And it was designed to answer a simple question. Do these drugs provide a long-term benefit? Or even a benefit in terms of functioning, school achievement, that sort of thing. Now, here's what happened in that long-term study. At the end of 14 months, there was some benefit, there was some sense that those treated with a stimulant, as opposed to uh, a behavioral therapy, had a greater diminishment on ADHD skills of ADHD symptoms. Okay. It wasn't much, but there was a little benefit beyond behavioral therapy at that time. So they said, aha, this is a comparative study that shows that stimulants are better than behavioral therapy. All right. And that became the study that is still often cited today saying this is why you need to take stimulants over the long term. However, that study continued. And by the end of three years, being on drug was a marker of deterioration, not of benefits. At the end of six years, being on drug was associated with, with um, more delinquency, greater ADHD symptoms, more functional impairment, and more anxiety and depression, okay? So they were all negative. There was no benefit on any domain of functioning, okay? Now, that's a study of the type that you were, were wanting to see, but that, why aren't, why aren't the results from that study promoted? Because there's no drug company or psychiatry itself that wants to promote the idea that it's drugs, it's treatment, are doing harm by year three, are doing harm by year six. The study in Quebec found that those who get stimulants were more likely to repeat classes, more likely to have trouble with their uh, parents. The one in Australia also saw that um, being given stimulants was a, was made you much more likely to, to, to do poorly in school. But there's no commercial interest promoting those results. So going back to what you said here is, when we think about the efficacy of drugs, that is coming from studies um, designed and conducted by the pharmaceutical makers of those drugs. That's number one. And number two, it's the pharmaceutical companies who decide whether or not to publish the results. And if the results are negative, they don't publish them. So what you're talking about here is a commercial environment that that basically says bias studies and, and sort of a, a, a publication bias for only pub, publishing the beneficial studies are what govern our thinking about, our societal thinking about um, the, the merits of, of drugs. So it's not science-based um, trials that is governing our thinking. It's commercially based trials. And that's a very different thing. And that's part of the problem is we don't really have science-based trials because science-based trials come with a question and, and a hypothesis. Are these drugs really better than say uh, some other therapy or, or you know, even placebo? And whatever the answers are, we'll publicize them. But that's not what we have. We have a commerce-based understanding of drugs, and it's biased, 
in favor of the drugs. It hides adverse effects. And that's part of the problem for our society. We do not have honest, open information about the merits of these drugs. Is it just the United States or other countries experiencing the same problems? Well, increase, first of all, the United States is the big elephant in this whole story, because if you look at spending on, on drugs, about half of global spending comes in, in the United States in terms of revenues. And in essence, this the same, these, uh, you know, company funded studies is still the data that is presented to say the European agencies for approval of the drugs and also becomes basically the, um, you know, the currency, the, 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 the sort of research currency that is repeated around the world because there isn't much independent funding of individual drugs. That's, that's the problem. And there isn't much of the comparison type work that you're talking about, where we compare a drug versus like a, well, what happens if you just change your diet or what happens if you do exercise? Now, there were, for example, some studies done at some point that compared exercises therapy compared for depression compared to antidepressants and this was government funded and guess which proved to be better especially over a longer period of time the exercise yeah but now even when you get that finding who's going to promote it is psychiatry going to promote it to the public are drug companies going to promote it to the public are you going to turn on your tv and say hey Exercise does better than antidepressants. That's part of there's an information flow here that is that is you know monetarily based. So we as a society are sort of lost in this web of commerce, commerce-oriented science rather than real research-oriented science. Is there a way to disconnect just the ties of business into some of these institutes that we're supposed to have respect for and trust in? You know what? You know it's a good question. What we need, obviously, is independent testing of drugs. We need. We need. You know, if we're going to be using all these medications, it, what we really need is to take to the pharmaceutical companies. You want to bring a drug to market, you got to give money to this independent organization that will test your drugs. We need an oversight committee on something on that. Well, you know, just a group of you know researchers who are not paid from the drug companies, but are paid. The money flows through this independent, you know, funnel, and so the researchers don't have any sort of obligation to the drug company. And then they design the study, the independent organization, not the drug company. The independent organization analyzes the data. The independent organization publicizes the data. You need to remove that commercial interest. That's what we need to do, and that's that's the problem we have now. You need to have you need to have independent testing of medications. What about stopping advertising of pharmaceutical drugs on the television? I mean, they use really. If you look into how deep they go into looking at how they market these drugs to people, they do stuff that's like psychologically just insane. Which is like they get the. The either if it's let's say it's for an older person, they'll get the child or the child the the adult child to put their older parents on a certain drug because they think it might help with certain things of keeping them around. And the way they they show that in the commercial is, do you have a grandparent who's slowly you know seems like they're not there? And then it'll be like a grandparent hugging their grandkids and not remember their grandkids. They pitch it like that to you on the TV, and then the person goes, I don't want my dad to leave before my kid grows up and then they go and put that parent on a drug or something like that and that's where they attack like the elderly pension i don't know but there's just a really 
weird marketing strategies where I started to notice this through my deep dives onto understanding film history and the propaganda that's loaded through films if you really analyze it. And I start noticing it in commercials now where I'm looking at a commercial and see certain tactics and certain things like the commercials just have a – they go deep on that. I went down a rabbit hole at one point on that, but I'm just curious. Like that's the first step of stopping a lot of things. I mean when you find out a business is being that manipulative in just a subliminal advertisement message – that's how you just go. We're all kind of screwed from the start here. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, obviously, pharmaceutical companies and the advertising agencies they hire are very good about telling stories. That And so you've just told one. My favorite story that often is told around when they were marketing SSRI antidepressants is often you would see a handsome man and a handsome woman who, once they took their antidepressants, were like, holding hand in hand on the beach. And obviously there was a sense of love blooming and sex blooming, et cetera. Now in the clinical trials, they were finding that actually SSRIs cause sexual dysfunction in a high percentage of people and actually diminished your ability to uh, mount an emotional response to someone else. So that was the data, but what did the, what was the story you saw on your TV ad? Well, if I take this drug pretty soon, I'm going to be in love with a beautiful woman or a handsome man. And riding a horse on the beach. Yeah, exactly. So, and then you'll even hear like, you know, they, they go through quickly about all the adverse events, but that's not what the person's taking in, really. What are they taking in? They're taking the image that just you're talking about. And what that does, of course, is create demand for the product. Now people go into their uh, doctors, their general practitioner, or your primary care doctor, and they say, hey, I want this drug. And the doctor knows, well, I sort of need to satisfy the patient so they prescribe. So what you're seeing here, again, is a commercial process that does involve advertising their products to create demand for the drugs. And that's what they do. So that's this is the point. Psychiatry and its drugs, just to start with that, it all operates within a commercial product environment. Any commercial environment wants to create customers for its drugs right? And demand for its drugs. And that's what's happened over the last 40 years. And they've done it very successfully. You think it's gone a little bit deeper than just, you know, in infecting everybody's life, but also how they think about things as well, too. Um, oh, absolutely. It's a philosophy of being how we think about ourselves. It's changed how we raise our kids. It's changed how we think about ourselves. It's changed about how we think about our capacity to uh, you know, endure difficult situations. It's completely changed our society. There's this is an odd question, but it's I think it's a good one, which is that if you go on Facebook and you try and type in Adderall or you try and type in some of these drugs that some people talk about in some groups or whatever you want to talk about, Facebook censors will not let that happen. But people have just put a number or changed up the wording of it so you can still know what it is, but they put symbols or something to spell out the word completely. And I go, now you don't have uh businesses pushing wording or showing you things about this you now have people that are trying to push this through and it's like supporting itself now it's a snake eating its own tail it's people that are now literally trying everything they possibly can to be as crafty as they can to talk about different types of medications they take and different types of things that could be helpful to another person so now other people are diagnosing other people not just themselves. That's a fucking crazy thing, man. I've noticed it. And I'm like, this is a problem. Why is that person who has no any, anything, no credentials to them, but just going, hey, yeah, I saw this on Google. You might have this and tossing it out there. I'm like, oh, God, I was like, I don't want to be that person either. So it's like, how do we fix that? 
Well, you know, that's sort of what you're seeing is this discourse, this, you know, national discourse that has been created that exists on social media and, you know, many different places by a commercial environment. And, you know, social media is a commercial environment, very much so with ads and that sort of thing and people trying to get likes and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, well, you have what you have is a kids today grow up within a discourse that is completely alien to the discourse I grew up in. I had I, not, I heard none of this when I was a kid. I didn't know anybody was diagnosed when I was a kid. I never thought of psychiatric problems. Now, we would talk about that kid's a bully or that kid's a goof off or, or you know, that kid's a kiss ass or whatever. We had ways to describe behaviors, but there was no psychiatric discourse that I grew up with in. Zero. None. Now, this generation is, is like, uh, you know, that, that discourse is everywhere. That's the discourse they grow up in. And what you're just talking about is part of that discourse. And, and you know, social media, in the, in the way the algorithms, you know, send stuff back to you to sort of reinforce certain sort of thinking, it just heightens that sort of closed world that people are in there. I know, I you know, recently what you've talked about has been very interesting. I know a person who is working with people in college, like a counselor. And the people come to her and say, like, I'm bipolar. They're self-diagnosed. Yeah. Or I have ADHD. And I need this drug. So they that's what their discourse has given them. And they say, listen, you don't have ADHD. You don't have bipolar. And you know what happens when the counselor tells, if, if they say to them, they ask about their life and say, like, this, you're just a normal kid or whatever, going through difficulties. What do you think the, the, the person says to the counselor? Are they happy they're not diagnosed or are they unhappy they're not diagnosed? I thought they would get angry at the person. Exactly. That's not why they came. They came for confirmation that they have bipolar or they have some other or they have ADHD or whatever. That's how strong that discourse is in among the young population. Is it shocking to you to see how it's just I mean, I don't see it getting any better. At least from the last time we talked, it seems like I'm seeing more articles now about the number of misdiagnoses or the number of people diagnosed, or maybe I don't know, it's because maybe my search history, but from, I guess, when you started writing about just the medical industry in the first place to where we're at now, I mean, you've probably seen it drastically change, but I mean, do you see any hope from back then to where you have now where you're looking what the future is going to be like? Because honestly, I'm a bit of a pessimist about everything. Well, you know, I've sort of been in this world now for about 25 years writing about it. My first book, Mad in America, was published in 2002, but that means I was doing research going back to 2000, so at least two decades. And what is quite clear over this time is that this discourse, this way of seeing things, has greatly expanded. It's, it's moved so central into our, our way of being how we see ourselves and how we see our kids. So in that way, I'm extremely pessimistic. On the other hand, as this has become more commonplace and it's it's sort of got its grip on more and more people, you are getting more of a rebound effect where people are starting to criticize it about people whose lives went off track and, and we're seeing youth who aren't you know, able to grow up and flourish, and we're seeing more suicide, and we're seeing more uh, disability. 
So you are now seeing more of a critical reaction to that discourse. And as you know, I run a, a website called madinamerica.com. And the number of visitors we have each year keeps growing. And even more, I think, in, impactful or revelatory in terms of what's going on. We now have affiliates in 11 countries. We'll have affiliates in 15 countries by the end of the year, which tells you that that backlash to that discourse is, is, is growing. So if there's any optimism I see, it's that there is an increasing backlash to it. The data showing that you're harming society by that discourse, and, and by harming, I mean increasing burden of psychiatric disorders on the population, more depression, more anxiety, more disability, and more suicide. All those are markers of a failed discourse, a failed paradigm of care, and a marker saying we need to do something different. So on the one hand, I'm very pessimistic. I've seen this. It's like a viral meme that has spread throughout society, this whole psychiatrization of our society. But boy, it has done a lot of harm. And you have more and more people saying, fuck it. We got to do something different. Yeah. Well, Mr. Whitaker, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. Um, is there a place where people can find your links if you want to promote Madden America again? And also, if you have Twitter or any social media or anything, anybody can contact Yeah, you. just go to maddenamerica.com. That's our webzine where you'll find all sorts of research articles that we've talked about here. You'll talk, you can find all sorts of blogs and other things about how ADHD is a construct. So you can find critiques of diagnosis. You can find a lot of research on what research really has shown about the long-term effects of psychiatric drugs and what they do. You'll find radio podcasts there and that sort of thing. And you can find Mad in America on Twitter, on Facebook, and that sort of thing. But the first place to start is our website. Spend some time. You'll find personal stories. You'll find research news. You'll find all sorts of resources that do provide a very sort of reasoned, thorough critique of this discourse that has been out there that we've been talking about for this hour. Well, I appreciate the time. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Stay tuned for our next episode.